If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to tell you, I, um, I wrestled this week uh, with, with message preparation. So we sang this song, just uh, reading back those lyrics several months ago. Uh, the Lord reminded me of that song and, and uh, put it on a list to prepare for today. And as I walked into this week, I just, I had a really hard time each time I sat down to work on the sermon today. Uh, much of it, I think, just because of how important I feel like this message and the application of this question, these principles we've been talking about is in today's culture. But also, what breaks my heart is the thought that so many of us, so many people, believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will hear some of the things that I have to say today in the next two weeks as we, we wrap up this series and, and really kind of drill down on a couple of key areas. They're going to look at it and go, that's ridiculous. He, he doesn't know what it's like to live in modern day America, 2011. He's lost all touch with reality. It's just not practical, realistic that people would do the things that he's talking about. He, he, he's lost touch with who we are. But I would argue and tell you that I think because I'm in touch with today's culture, because I know what it's like to live in modern day America in 2011, that's why I think these things are so important. And I'm so passionate about the things that I'm going to talk about this week and in the next two weeks. Uh, it's the world, to be honest with you, is eating our lunch in a lot of these areas, particularly when it comes to moral values. I mean, the, the rates of morality for Christians inside the church and non-Christians outside the church are essentially the same. That there is very little evidence and difference that people see in the lives of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ than in the lives of people who don't call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And church, those things need to change. There should be a difference in your life and my life because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live out our lives. And there will be people who are going to hear what I'm going to say in the next couple of weeks, the, the next few minutes today, in the next couple of weeks, and they're going to say, well, the Bible doesn't command that. That's too far. That's too radical. That's too extreme. I, I'm just not going to do it because I don't have to. I've got freedom in Christ. I, I, I can do these things. I can handle this stuff. And I fear that down the road, six months, a year, five years from now, I'll get a call. I'll get an email. Or someone will call and share something that's going on. And I'll shed a tear for the pain and the hurt that you're experiencing, for the hardships you're going through. And I would, I would never say it to you, but I will think in my mind, why, 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 why didn't you listen? Why didn't you hear? Why didn't you pray and say, God, is this right? Is this true? Do I need to do this? Why wouldn't you take heed and take warning and set safeguards in your life to protect yourself from these things? And church, I speak to you about that situation playing out because I have seen it happen over and over and over again in ministry. And it's a tragedy. 
It's a tragedy because guarding and protecting ourselves from those things could be so simple. So simple by asking ourselves, what's the wise thing to do? What does Jesus, what would he have me to do in these situations? And then applying the answers that he leads you to in these questions. But two things uh, I want to ask of you as we get started this morning in the next couple of weeks. First, prayerfully consider everything I have to say. Don't shut me down. Don't get out your phone and start, you know, playing angry birds or, you know, something like that. All right. Just, just keep focused. Keep listening. If you see your spouse, you know, yank their phone away, you know, whatever, uh, raise it up. So I'll know that they're doing it. All right. Just call them out that that'll be fine. That that'll squash it right away. But just listen prayerfully, keep an open mind and say, God, show me what to keep. Show me what to act upon, what I need to do. And then Lord, help me just kind of, you know, not, not do and put into practice the things that, that don't really fit where I'm at. All right. I, I trust God to help you be able to do that. But secondly, when it comes to issues of morality that we'll hit upon some this week and the next couple of weeks, make sure your approach to morality is biblical. Make sure it's biblical. I mean, you may, you may vehemently or adamantly disagree with, with some of the things that I have to say this morning, and that's fine. I mean, knock yourself out if you want to do that. I give you total permission to disagree. But listen, think through your life and the choices and decisions that you make and make sure you are grounded in truths and principles and instruction from God's word. Because I'm going to tell you something, if you're picking up a worldly view of morality and of ethics and things along those lines, then you are setting yourself in a path and you're in a course that, that is contrary to God's word and to God's will. The world is not going to give you godly biblical advice in these areas. It's just not. So make sure that however you approach these things, that it's grounded and it's rooted in Scripture. Because the Bible says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And so order your life. Make decisions based on God's word, not the things and the ways and the wisdom of the world. So let's begin this morning with the end in mind. Let's go to the end first and understand why this is important. I mean, why even have this conversation? Why does this matter in the first place? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 31, this is the end of a section of scripture. Paul says to sum it up, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you get nothing else today, I hope and pray that verse will be seared into your long-term memory and that every time you face a choice, there's a decision for you to make, you will think back to this verse where Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do you know what that includes? Every part of your life. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as we've been talking about this best question ever, what's the wise thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? It's to do that which brings the most glory to God. There's the answer. What's the wise thing to do? That which gives God the most glory. 
Paul goes on to say, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So Paul says, I don't want there to be anything in my life that offends or is offensive to any person or that may keep them from coming to Christ. He says, I don't seek my own advantage, but that of others, of many, that they may be saved. And how do we do that? I mean, how do we live our lives in a way that people are drawn to Christ instead of driven away from him? Paul sums it up in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we should follow Paul's example, he says, which is to follow what? The example of Christ. It's not, I don't want to be like Paul. I want to be like Jesus. But we can be like Paul because Paul is trying to be like Jesus, all right? So be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Think about your actions. Think about your speech, the language that you use, the things that you say and the way you say them. Think about the places that you go and the people you associate yourself with and ask yourself about each of those things. What do they say about my relationship with Jesus Christ? Because your actions, your speech, your behaviors, your thoughts, the people that you're with, they convey a message about Jesus Christ. What is the message that they convey? And ask yourself, are these things helping draw people closer to Christ or are they maybe repelling and pushing them away? You see, Paul wrote this passage of scripture. He spends three chapters in 1 Corinthians dedicated to speaking and teaching to the issue of food sacrificed to idols in ancient Corinth and the cultural stumbling block that issue became for believers and unbelievers in that culture. Eating meat sacrificed to idols became an issue both for believers and unbelievers because of how people perceived that issue. And Paul says, I'm not going to do anything in this area that may cause someone to stumble and to be driven away from Christ. It's not about me, it's about people, and it's about the gospel being lived out. So I ask you, is your life being lived as an example, setting an example for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 8. I want to hit just a couple of high points in these uh, three chapters here about Paul addressing this food sacrifice to idols. We're going to lay the foundation this week and then next week and the week after. I'm going to drill down on two specific issues, but the things we see in these three chapters are so relevant that I needed to get this foundation for us today. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's an important statement there. It's a a quotation. We know that all of us possess knowledge. But Paul says about this knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He says, you as Corinthian believers, you know something, you have knowledge, you have a head knowledge of something. But unfortunately, your head knowledge and what you know has caused pride within you. It has puffed you up. you're, You're arrogant and how you're approaching these things. And then he gently reminds them here that they shouldn't desire a knowledge that puffs up, 
but they should want to display and exemplify a what? A love that builds up. We should seek love that builds up. Look at verse 9 in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, some Corinthian believers were apparently doing something that was technically and legally and lawfully, as in according to God's law, it was right. It was okay, or at least it wasn't wrong for them to do. And their knowledge, what they knew in their head was, there's nothing wrong with me doing this action, this activity, or or participating in this thing. And Paul says, don't let your right to be able to do this, become a stumbling block or a possible cause to sin for someone else. In verse 10, he illustrates it and identifies what he's talking about and then strengthens his language as he goes through. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So Paul says, your example, you're you're right that you you are free to do this, but if someone who's not where you are in the spiritual maturity uh, continuum sees you doing that, and they say, oh, well, if he or she's doing it, it must be okay, and then they follow after it, it leads them into sin, that's on you. You set that example. You had the right, you had the freedom, but you led someone into sin. And look at what he has to say about that in verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. He started by saying we we gently, that love builds up. But here he says, you sin by leading them in this way by your example and your freedom. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So remember what he said in chapter 10, verse 32, I don't seek my own advantage. Paul says, if it's my advantage, I I like meat, I want to eat meat, but if it's going to cause a brother to stumble, I'm not going to do it because it's not about my, me and my own advantage. It's about my example for others and me leading people and drawing them closer to the gospel. When chapter nine, Paul spends this chapter basically going through and saying, you know what? I have rights in Christ. I have freedom in Christ. I can do a whole lot of things that that aren't wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. But in verse 12, he really encapsulates the message of this. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 12, the last half of that verse, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So here we see again, it's about the gospel being displayed and lived out and evidenced in your life so that people see it. In chapter 10, still speaking on the same topic, he gives a warning that's so important for us uh, as we think about walking close to the pits of sin that are so prevalent in our society today. It was in the song uh, that Grant just sang. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. 
pay careful attention. We overestimate our willpower, our ability to say no, to avoid sin, to walk away from sin areas in our lives. We overestimate how strong we are and we underestimate the lure and the enticement and the power of Satan and sin to suck us in. We overestimate and we underestimate. And Paul says, ooh, be careful. Be careful. Take heed because when you think you can do it, when you think you're standing strong, that's when you're most susceptible and you may fall. Skip down to verse 23, the last part of this this passage here, which leads us back to and brings us full circle to verse 31. Verse 23, a great principle. If you have your Bible, you need to underline this verse. All things are lawful. Paul's saying that that according to God's word, now that doesn't mean all things. There are things in God's word that say don't do it. And when we see those things, we don't do it, all right? So, but he's in this topic, he's talking about all things are lawful. That means it may be okay in God's law, but he says, not all things are helpful. See the difference there? All things are lawful. It might be okay for us to do this, that, or the other that's in our mind, but it may not be helpful. And then he goes on and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And he goes on to say here, for the earth, and this is describing this uh, meat sacrifice to idol, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So there's two decisions in there. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal, Paul says, if you're disposed to go, you need to first of all think about where you're going to be, what situation, what context you're going to be in, and if that's going to bring glory and honor to Christ just by being in that situation. Because you can compromise. You can become a stumbling block just by your very presence in certain places. So Paul says, first of all, if you're disposed to go to this dinner with an unbeliever, and then they put this big old meaty steak in front of you, and they say, hey, here's dinner. You're like, man, this is awesome. You give thanks to the Lord and you eat the steak. No big deal, all right? You were invited, there's food there. there there's no issue. No one's thinking anything at all about your freedom in Christ or, or where this food may have come from. But he tells us in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. Look at verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So he says, if you're with this unbeliever and they, they put this meat in front of you that, that, that apparently came from a, a temple. Uh, see, in ancient Corinth, this was a major metropolitan city. Someone once quipped and said, you can find more God, more gods in the city of Corinth than you could men in the city. I mean, there were temples to false gods everywhere. And part of the, the ritual participation with these gods was to offer animal sacrifices. And so they offered the animal sacrifices and then they sold the meat to raise money to continue uh, their religion and their work and their efforts. Well, people knew that once they came to Christ, they were to steer clear of these false temples, these places where these idols were worshipped. They should have nothing to do with them because now they were followers of Jesus Christ, the one true God. They knew that they were to avoid the temples. 
And some were saying that you shouldn't even go and buy any of the meat that's there or any vegetables or anything that was being sold at these temples because your money is being used to support a trade or a business or an activity that is wrong, that it's sinful to allow them to have further resources to spread their false religion. And so they said, it's wrong for you to, to eat these things that are purchased there. But others said, you know what? Hey, I'm not following after them. I'm just getting meat to feed my family, to put food on the table, you know, and maybe it's a good price. You know, they're having a good, they're having to buy one, get one free meal this week or, or whatever the case may be. So th- there's nothing wrong with it as a matter of conscience. And Paul said, you're right. There is nothing wrong with it. So if you're invited over and you want to eat that meat, it's fine. But if whoever serves it to you says, hey, but you need to know that, that, that this meat was sacrificed to idols and I bought it at the temple don't eat it because the fact that they brought it up means there's a question in their mind they're not sure whether or not christians should be eating this meat sacrificed to idols they're a little uncertain something doesn't look right it doesn't sit well within that person that's why paul said their conscience not yours he said you're fine to eat it it's no big deal for you but if they're bringing it up they're not sure so it's best for you to not eat that meat so that you don't create a stumbling block for this person. He goes on, he wraps up here, and and he asks two questions. And these are logical questions that some of you may be asking right now, saying, well, that's not fair. You know, I've got to live my life based on someone else's opinion, especially if if they're weak or they're more immature, they're not where I'm at. That's not fair for me to do that. I mean, why can't I do what I want to do regardless of what anybody else is going to say? And Paul voices those questions. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Well, that's not right. I I like this. I enjoy this. I want to do this. I've got the freedom. There's nothing wrong with this. So I should be able to do it, right? We're asking that question. And then Paul says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And how does he end this passage? By saying, I don't seek my own advantage, but that of many, that many may be saved. So it's our life. It's our witness. It is our testimony for the sake of the gospel. And church, we've got to grapple with these questions because these questions are very important for the church in America today. Verse 23, Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You know, we can do a lot of things in Jesus Christ who gives us freedom and there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. We can do a lot of things. But asking what's the wise thing to do causes us to not say, can I do this, but should I do this? There is a huge difference in those two questions. Not can I do this, but should I do this? 
this week, Pastor Joe and Pastor Michael and myself are going to be speaking to the, uh, the teenagers and their parents on Wednesday night about, um, about alcohol, about sex, and about making wise choices. And if you're a parent of a, of a student, even if they can't be here, if you're a student and your parents can't be here, you need to be here to hear some of the things that we're going to talk about and share related to this area uh, this Wednesday night. And if you are a parent of children who are going to be in, in these years, in the, in, in the very near future, you're welcome to come and be a part of this on Wednesday night as well. The next Sunday morning, I'm going to uh, preach a message on Christians and alcohol. We're going to dive right in feet first. We're going to take a look at this issue in modern day America as it relates to Christians and their example and their witness and their testimony for Christ and the wisdom of that decision and the biblical teachings on that issue. And then the last week of this month, I'm going to preach on what's the wise thing to do relationally as we think about lessons and principles related to sexuality, but also to healthy marriages, healthy families, uh, and parenting relationship. But I want to leave you this morning with a couple of things uh, before we, we wrap up today. Biblical wisdom teaches us. Biblical wisdom, what's the wise thing to do? It teaches us to distance ourselves from sin. Biblical wisdom teaches us to distance ourselves from things that may lead us into sin, particularly if we have a propensity and a tendency or a history in these areas. And biblical wisdom leads us to distance ourselves from things that could even be perceived as sinful. That's what biblical wisdom does. Paul says, I don't seek my own advantage, but but that of others that they may be saved. He says, I will not do anything if it does one of two things. One, if it puts a stumbling block in someone's path, maybe leads them to sin, I'm not going to do it. But two, if it's going to drive someone away from the gospel instead of draw them closer to it, then I'm not going to do that thing. And I mentioned in week one that, that so often we start with the question, is it wrong? And I said, that's not a great place to start because that leads us very close to the edge of what I call sin pitfalls. And you know what a pitfall is? Not the old Atari game where you used to play and jump the alligators and all that. Some of you are, are shaking your head. You're 80s children, I know. But, but a pitfall is, is, is what it describes. It is a, it's a huge hole, a pit that people fall into. And it's not like padded with airbags and stuff on the bottom like in today's culture. I mean, it, it's a bad pit to fall into. Like, think like quicksand or, or dangerous alligators or sharp, jagged rocks or hungry lions in a lion's den. A pitfall is a place you don't want to be. And so if you know there's this huge pit with danger and death and destruction uh, in front of you, what's the wise thing to do knowing that this big pit is there? It's to not get close to it. All right? I mean, that's why they have fences up at the Grand Canyon, all right? You want to think pit? There's a big pit, all right? They have fences to protect you, to keep people from falling in. If they didn't do that, what do you think Americans are going to do? Hey, come look at this hole, you guys. Way down there. But here's what we do with our morality. And stop me if I'm wrong. We ask, is it wrong? And we try to get as close to the line as we can with moral issues. And then what happens? What happens is what I said earlier. The morality inside the church is like the morality outside the church. Why? Because believers fall in the pit. Unbelievers fall in the pit. We know these common pits. You don't need me to enumerate and to outline what these pits are. They're very common to us. 
The thing is, we're not taking the wisdom. We're not taking the time to distance ourselves and step back from the pit. Yet that's what biblical wisdom teaches us to do. It's to get away, step back, and to not be there to avoid that pit so that we don't fall in and we don't get sucked in. We don't get pushed in by somebody else behind us. I loved watching growing up the Karate Kid movies. Man, the crane kick and the end of the movie. Oh, man, that's, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I love the karate. Even the second, when you're, Daniel went and traveled uh, to Mr. Miyagi's homeland, and while he's there, they had a thing that looked like a kid toy. Do y'all remember the, the, this, this movie? They had this thing that looked like a kid toy. It was a little drum on a stick, and it had two little uh, strings hanging off and a ball or a pebble or something on the end of it. And they would take, and they got there, and they were rubbing them like this, and it's going tuk, 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 around the sides of it. You're going, oh, that's a pretty neat little toy. Well, that was actually a teaching tool. Daniel uh, was asking about it. Mr. Miyagi said, the principle here is the best way to avoid the destruction of a punch that's coming your way is to not get hit. It's not brace yourself for it. It's not, you know, move into it. The best way to avoid the, the, the destruction of a punch is to not be there. So the idea of this little toy was when someone's swinging at you, you move out of the way. You like that, don't you? That's, that's my, my karate. You move out of the way. And as you do, you're able to land one, you know, on your enemy. And then he comes back here and you move out of the way. And psh, psh. I look like one of those 1995 uh, exercise things, don't I? Back and forth. That was bad. Can we edit that out of the video, guys? <laughs> Mike is dying up there. But that's the idea of the toy. And at the end of the movie, Daniel, you know, he's, he's getting, you know, whooped as they always do in the movies, like Rocky and stuff. And then they all start doing this in the audience. And he goes, oh, yeah, move, get out of the way. Okay, now I got it. Dude, that is so, so relevant when it comes to this idea of sin pitfalls and the destruction that sin brings in our life. The best way to avoid being sucked into and experiencing the negative, the, the negative impacts and repercussions of sin is to not be around it, to not be near it so that you're not sucked into and succumbing to these sins that we so often experience. Biblical wisdom says set boundaries, set parameters, set fences in your life that keep you far, far away from the things that lead you into those first steps towards sin. Even if, here's the big part of this, set boundaries, fences, guardrails in your life that keep you away from those first steps, even if they're politically, socially, or culturally incorrect. Because here's the thing, when you set up some boundaries in your life to protect yourself morally, some people are going to look at you and say, what? You're not going to do what? Why? What is wrong with you? That's weird. Nobody does that. It's ridiculous. I know other Christians and they don't do that. Why would you do that? That's strange. That's odd. And those are the kind things that they'll say to you when you have these boundaries and these parameters in your life. But the things that we've talked about so much in recent weeks the outcomes of these destructive things could have been avoided if we had been practical in setting boundaries before we made those decisions. If we'd had those boundaries and those guardrails, because the, the outcomes are pretty predictable. 
I mean, we see people, we see things in their life. We go, this is not healthy. This is not good. I can see where this is going, that they're going to wind up, that their life's going to be a wreck here because I see these things in their life. It's going to happen. They're marching down that path. The outcomes are predictable. We know where it's going to head. We know where it's going to wind up. But you know what else is generally pretty predictable? The steps that we start taking in that direction. And they're small. They're incremental. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not immoral. It's not against scripture. You know, people do it all the time and they're fine. And we take these small steps that start down this path. And people may try to warn us. They may try to say, be careful. Watch out. We don't pay any attention. I can handle it. I'll be fine. I'm going to be okay. Maybe it'll happen to other people. It's not going to happen to me. Adulterous affairs often begin innocently when people of the opposite sex put themselves alone in a context to begin developing a relationship with another person. Business lunch. It's fine. It's good. We, we got to work. We got to eat. So we're going we're gonna to do that. Is it wrong to do that? No. Is it wise to do that? I can give you the name of about four individuals, four men and their wives who would scream at the top of their lungs, no, it's not the wise thing to do because they've experienced the carnage and the wreckage that started from those contexts and those innocent, nothing immoral, nothing biblically wrong situations. Alcohol and drug detox facilities are filled with people who decided to have just one or were going to take just one hit with their buddies. That was it. They were going to have some fun that night. Gambling addicts told themselves, I won't spend more than I take in. And if I win, if I get ahead, I'm done. I quit. Pornography addicts say, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's just a picture. It's just a video. It's not hurting anybody at all. None of those individuals intended for the outcomes that they're experiencing. None of them planned for the, the destruction that they've experienced in their lives. But we can't trust our intentions. What is that old saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, good intentions. Wisdom prevents. Asking what's the wise thing to do and then applying. It causes us to be preventive in our walk and our relationship with Christ, not just reactionary to situations. For example, I can guarantee you one way you'll never have children outside of wedlock experiencing the physical, psychological, emotional, or spiritual ramifications that come as a result of having sex outside of marriage. You know how I can guarantee you won't experience any of those things? It's by not having sex outside of marriage, which is according to God's plan, his word. Now, if you believe that principle is true, you're going to make decisions in your life to keep yourself out of situations, out of context, where you can be lured into, where you won't break that commitment. Now, people may look at you strange and say, are you really? This is, yes, I believe in this firmly and strongly. It's God's word. It's the wise thing to do. So I'm going to apply it to my life. I don't care what anybody thinks. That's applying the best question ever. Last thought is this. 
as we think about these moral choices and decisions, I would encourage you to think in your life and to begin praying through asking God to show you places where you need to set up boundaries and parameters that are so far away from the pitfalls of sin that should you step over a line and violate something that, that uh, you've set in place, it's not detrimental. It's not life-altering and life-changing because you could say, hey, wait a second, I, I said I wasn't going to do that. I, I, I've slipped up there. I'm stepping back to my safety zone over here. I learned about setting up a, a good boundaries in a, in a way that didn't, you know, cost me a whole, whole lot. I was the education pastor at my previous church. And as the education pastor, sometimes I would have to fill in Sunday school for different teachers. And they would call in and say, hey, can you teach on such and such date? And I would generally write that on my calendar. And I put it in there on my calendar, which was coming to my phone. And I set it up for a 15-minute alert. So one Sunday morning... I arrive at church for a normal day's activity to go and to pop around, visit Sunday school, sit in worship with my family and just be a part of the day. When at 9.15 for a 9.30 Sunday school class, my phone alerts me to the fact that I'm teaching Sunday school for someone. Now, do you know when I thought about teaching Sunday school? At 9.15 when I looked at my phone. Now, fortunately, I've got a history and a background in this, so I was able to grab something, go to class, and I don't think anybody was in the, any wiser that day for me doing that, but I learned a valuable lesson that day. I said, Curtis, you need to give yourself time to be alerted. And so I started with a minimum one day, if not, you know, three, four, five, one week type day, depending on how big the situation is that I need to prepare for, I set myself a, 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 an alert in the future to prepare me for that. I want to challenge you to think about what areas in your life do you need some safeguards, you need some boundaries that are way back that should you overstep that, you go, oh, wait a second, I, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable where this needs to be. Because we need those warning signs, and we need them a lot sooner than right here on the edge of these moral pitfalls. Because church, as I said earlier, the world is eating our lunch in these areas. And so I want to challenge you with that, but I want to leave you this morning with the message of hope. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we think about morality and moral pitfalls, all of us would look, and as I, you know, the, the term moral maze, I'm in a maze as I've gone through life. I've made some bad choices. I've come to some dead end points in my life. I made some wrong turns in the moral maze in my life, and I may be in the midst of those right now. I really botched this, Curtis, and yeah, I needed these boundaries, and I should have set this stuff up, and I, I should have asked what's the wise thing to do and done stuff then, but I didn't do it. What do I do now? Some of these, these things that you're talking about, the, the, the destruction and the hurt and the pain, that's where I'm at or that's where I've been and it's really difficult. What do I do now? When 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he goes through a list of some of the common moral pitfalls the Corinthians were experiencing, but I think you'll see some of these in modern-day America as well. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you are going, I thought you said this was going to be hopeful. <laughs> Thank you for piling that list on. But look at what he says in verse 11. And such you were you were well, what does that mean that's past tense paul says you were some of these things but you were washed 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We sang the God of second chances. And Paul tells those people on that list, some of you were those people, but you've met the God of second chances. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been healed of those sins, of those things in your life. Christ has given you a fresh start. You're a new creature in him. And now he calls you to live your life in obedience to him so that others will see and be drawn to the Christ that that you've experienced, that they may have a second chance, that they can be forgiven, that they can have a fresh start. If you are here today and you have never experienced that forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that being washed and that being cleansed, then I want you to know that today is the day that you can start that fresh journey with Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven, healed, and start over afresh and anew. Our pastors will be available. We would love to lead you today to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ to start over. No matter how many wrong turns, no matter how many pits you've fallen into, Jesus Christ is here today to lift you up, to dust you off, to to cleanse you through his blood, and to give you a second chance to begin living your life in a way that will draw others, that you can share the gospel through your life and your witness and your testimony. Some of you are here today, and as I've talked about these pitfalls and these boundaries The Holy Spirit has spoken and said, you're getting too close. I've been trying to warn you. I've been sounding bells and whistles and you've been ignoring me. Don't leave today being a hardhead. Don't leave today thinking you're strong enough and you're gonna be fine. You're not. You're playing with fire and you're gonna get burned. And today the Holy Spirit is saying, set up those boundaries. You need to confess to a friend, to a spouse, to a pastor. You need to let them know what's going on so they can pray and they can help hold you accountable. They can surround you and keep you and help you get off of that path and that road that you're on because you're headed for a heartache. Was that a country western song? You're headed for a heartache? Maybe it was, but I'm telling you that's what's there. And today, if the Holy Spirit has, I mean, he's not whispering. He's going, listen, listen. If he's saying it today, don't ignore. Heed that warning. Confess and get serious about protecting your heart and your relationship with Christ for the sake of the gospel. Would you take that step of obedience today, whatever it may look like for you?